0: Welcome to Zero Brightness, a podcast about horror video games. I'm engineer and musician Ali Jafar, stationed in Minneapolis, Minnesota, and I'm joined by my friend and fellow musician, James Woodard, all the way from San Antonio, Texas. Zero Brightness. Well, we were talking about getting those notices from your internet provider. Oh, yeah. Pirating, which, yeah, it was so funny because the first time I got one of those, it was our roommate, but it was like really weird because, like, we got the letter and it said what they were pirating. I had to go up and be like, hey man, like, (laughs) please don't download Game of Thrones or whatever. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yep, but the best one was so there's uh, our practice base has Wi Fi and it's really bad Like, it's probably the worst Wi-Fi I've ever experienced in a place that I pay money to, like, be inside of, you know? Uh Uh-huh. And, like, somebody apparently had just been torrenting, like, up and down just the, like, douchiest, dumbest collection of shit. Like, it was, like, Family Guy, uh, (laughs) Family Guy. (laughs) Uh, that show about fantasy football and like all this shit and it was just like they got like a takedown notice with like eight pages of this shit so the landlord just put them all up on the bulletin board and it was literally just like fuck you if you keep doing this we're not having internet here Um, and like it was just so fucking funny because I got to just walk up and judge this guy like so hard (laughs) I was like god you're such a fucking douchebag dude you're like sitting in your practice space smoking weed torrenting family guy probably masturbating also to family Guy. like <laughs> fuck you
1: i mean family guy is on all the time why do you need to
0: pirate that yeah i know it's <laughs> like i remember being in high school and the challenge was to like turn off the tv because family guy was on all the fucking time <laughs> yeah no thanks oh
1: yeah nope this podcast actually is brought to you today by pirating the game devotion
0: yeah oh my god look at that we actually did like a real segue (laughs) yeah Uh, so today we're talking about the developer red candle games who have two games we played both of them and we're gonna talk about them and uh you know they're noteworthy because they made two really cool looking horror games but they've been relevant recently because they came under fire uh, from the Chinese government. It's it's sort of unclear right. and mm-hmm. they pulled their big marquee release, which was doing super well in sales and reviews and all that. Uh, just pulled it off of steam and it hasn't been seen since uh, that was like two months ago.
1: Yeah, February. Uh, I think it was for sale for literally like seven days before it got pulled.
0: So we actually used The Wonders of Piracy to play uh, the game Devotion, which you can't get a copy of right now.
1: I, I plan on paying for it when I'm able to, because the game is really good.
0: Yeah, I mean, either from an artistic or a political perspective, it's totally the type of thing that I want to see more of. So. I'm happy to pay for
1: it. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the things that's kind of alluring to me about Red Candle games, which I didn't realize beforehand, is that they're both pretty politically um, subversive.
0: Right. Well, and this is one thing that really started to get under my skin when I started researching this topic, is that a lot of the talk around it is well, this developer made these games. They're not political, but because of this one little thing, they've come under fire from the Chinese government. After playing these games, that's such hot garbage. That's bullshit. (laughs) Yeah, these games are so heavily political that Mm -hmm. I actually think the whole situation is a lot scarier and more fucked up because it's like, this is directly criticizing government control. This is directly criticizing authoritarian governments. And now they've come under fire from an authoritarian government. It's almost like the games were cautionary and then
1: they're reaping the consequences of that.
0: Oh, yeah. A hundred percent. The other thing that's crazy is that. So the way it happened was uh, in devotion. There was this sort of glyph on the wall that contained some text making fun of the leader of China. Mm -hmm. who People call Pooh. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and compare to Winnie the Pooh. And so this text was in the game and people found it and freaked out and they started getting review bombed, and I'm sure they were privately receiving all sorts of crazy fucking emails and all this kind of stuff. Right. The thing is that, I mean, we know that the Chinese government is super internet savvy and that even though they restrict that internet access of, the people of China, they also do a lot of weird stuff with the internet. So it's like, you really don't know if these are actual Chinese people who are pissed off about this or if these are just puppet accounts or if these are sure. just government government employees who are made to use their own private accounts to do this kind of stuff. Like you really don't know. And I mean, and I, that's my perspective on it just as like an Arab person where it's like, there are really horrible Arab governments that do not represent their people. There's, you know, Israel who's like the fucking worst, like genocidal dictatorship. And they don't represent the Israeli people. Cause you know, your average person like just doesn't believe in that shit. And so it's really fucked up because it's like an exercise in social control and censorship. That's also kind of painting the Chinese people as these like reactionary hysterical, you know, whatever. And I don't think that's real either.
1: Yeah. I am a bit concerned about the safety of the developers, you know.
0: They might get thrown in jail and just forgotten about, you know? Who knows? Right. And I mean the the last update on it was literally just well, it was radio silence for months and then yeah. both Kotaku and another outlet, mm-hmm. I think it was Poly- Polygon, like finally got had been emailing them and finally got a response from their PR person and they were basically just like, we can't do anything right now and we're not going to do anything right now, which is very scary. Yeah. Like that's not normal PR stuff. It seems like something where
1: you could just, you know, change some of the assets and re-release the game quickly, but it's been a couple months. So.
0: Right. Well, that's what everyone said was like, well, just patch it out. And steam even has the entire review bomb, algorithm now and mm-hmm. you're going to be fine but it's clearly clearly there's something deeper and something more at play here i think they're just trying to see if this will blow over or you know just trying to figure out how to get out of this situation
1: well it's really a shame because i mean we'll get into the game but it's just a great game
0: yeah absolutely i really really loved both of these games i mean at the risk of just saying what i think at the top but right <laughs> I think it's okay because there's actually a lot to talk about here. Sure, yeah. Um, so, one thing that I think is really important to get out of the way first is the context surrounding the relationship between Taiwan and China. Right. This is um, something
1: I actually knew nothing about at going into this. And, uh, you know, just doing research on the games was really interesting and sort of enlightening.
0: I know a little bit more about this than the average person. Because when I was a kid, I got super into Chinese action movies. Mm. And there's a movie called Super Cop, uh, which I actually think is like Police (laughs) Story 2 or or something. So it's a Jackie Chan movie. Jackie Chan and Michelle Yeoh. Uh, And Super Cop is a fucking baller movie. It's like easily one of the best action movies ever made. But it has this kind of weird political subplot that I didn't get. And then at the very end of the movie, like Michelle Yeoh's character is like, Oh yeah, here is the political context of the whole movie. And she's talking about how Hong Kong was jointly owned, you know, quote unquote, by China and the UK. Interesting. And at that time, the, you know, that was in the late 90s, I think it was 98, 99, they were actually transferring control back to China completely and so Hong Kong had its own sort of like culture and standard of living and industrial base and you know information market and all this kind of stuff that had basically developed because it wasn't wholly owned by China Right. the people there were ethnically you know Chinese and culturally Chinese but this place had just been operating a completely different way you know And that was where a lot of the movies and culture and stuff at the time was coming from. So I, I like as a kid, I was like, man, that's fucking crazy. And so I went and I did some research on it. it. And it turns out there's, you know, like two places like that. There's Hong Kong, which kind of developed along with China in a different path. And then there's Taiwan. A lot of people who don't know about this just think that Taiwan is part of China, like a state or something, uh, mm-hmm. And it's not. Taiwan is actually its own country. And it was basically established at the same time as uh, like the modern Chinese government was established. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's It was called the Republic of China. Uh, different from the People's Republic of China. (laughs) Uh, And it was basically an opposing government. What's really wild is that they actually had a somewhat similar sort of political development over time. You know, in the People's Republic of China, what we know as like mainland China, um, they had the sort of like revolution period. Um, known as the cultural revolution that was super oppressive Mm -hmm. a lot of people were made political prisoners a lot of people were killed the whole country got upended Um, but it was sort of sold to the people as this socialist revolution so it wasn't seen or it wasn't marketed I guess as like authoritarianism it was marketed Mm -hmm. as socialism Right. Taiwan did the opposite they had a period called the white terror which is when the game detention is set Mm -hmm. um that they basically went full authoritarian and they were actually under martial law for something like 40 years right? Um, and so they were just like okay we are an authoritarian government we are run by the military and like we're just gonna sort of openly like keep this country on lockdown you know and So these two countries developed alongside each other and there really is a very tense relationship. I mean, even up until now, you can see that whenever a politician in Taiwan asserts their independence, just vocally, just saying, Mm -hmm. hey, we're not China. The Chinese government gets fucking pissed and like... They sort of seem to be locked in this weird kind of dance back and forth.
1: Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think Taiwan is recognized as sovereign by a
0: lot of countries. The Chinese government doesn't really recognize them, but they also don't, you know, it's not actually a part of China. It's just this this thing. and And yeah, it just seems like this weird sort of dance back and forth. You know, and once again, I I actually, this stuff really kind of hit home for me because, like, I'm my family's from Lebanon and Mm. Lebanon is an independent country, but its borders are really fluid because Israel has been changing them for years. And basically, whenever Israel wanted to try and make a land grab, they would just say, like, oh, we're annexing this or, like, oh, we're moving the border, you know? Mm. And So it's, like, fucked up because other countries look and say, oh, like, Lebanon is its own country, Israel is its own country, but they don't functionally do anything about it. And it's just been this, yeah, this really fucked up back and forth forever. And so I think Taiwan is in a a similar situation. And it's similar also in the sense of how scary it is, where it's, like, they're very small. They don't have the resources. China has, like, just all the resources, you know. In the same way that Israel's backed by the U.S. government, so they have yep. they have the the U.S.'s resources. So it, it's it's really scary and and fucked up. And I think in this context, what I was thinking about is China has been really confusing to me in the last I don't know few years because there's clearly a new openness that's coming, whether the government wants it or not, right? Yeah. We're just in a different time. People have the internet. The exchange of ideas is freer. You can't just take it away. You can keep trying, but you're not going to do it. Right. It's a losing battle. Right.
1: Unless you go full authoritarian.
0: Yeah, exactly. Which now you you have no economic incentive to do that. You know, right. you end up like North Korea. Mm hmm. And China does not want to be North Korea. <laughs> like,
1: I don't think North they, Korea wants to be North Korea.
0: Right. Exactly. They want to, you know, they want to be the number one. They want to take over the world in the sense of, like, their culture and their technology and their exports and their economy and all this stuff are the best. Right. But so there's this newfound openness, but there's also this kind of grasping on to this authoritarianism because that's the ideological base of the government. Mm hmm. And, and what's what's really crazy to me is that we've actually seen some artists who have come out and, in my opinion, been really critical of the government in a very artistic way. And they haven't really seen backlash. The first one that jumped around to mind is uh, Cixin Liu, who wrote The Three Body Problem, which is like a mm. huge popular novel right now worldwide. But like, He's super popular in China. I mean, there's like blockbuster movies made out of his books and like, you know, his books are super popular but The Three Body Problem is a wild-ass book, dude. Like, it opens, or at least it's partially set during the Cultural Revolution and it's like super critical of the actions of the government and it's super anti-authoritarian. And like, it basically just continually sort of dogs on the government for thinking <laughs> that the way that you create scientific progress is through authoritarianism. Like and it just mocks that idea openly. But like right. It's it's okay. <laughs> Somehow. Well also, yeah, I mean the
1: visual artist Ai Weiwei has yeah. been constantly criticized by the Chinese government and I think he's been arrested as like a political dissident a couple times. Right. But, you know, he's got a worldwide audience and
0: you can't really shut that out in 2019, you know? Right. Exactly. And I, I think there's a lot of artists who are just opening up that door and the government is trying to figure out how to respond. Right.
1: And I, I guess in a lesser
0: way, Red Candle is sort of that in video games. Oh, I mean, absolutely. Yeah. There's another author too, This and this is what I mean. I think when you get into these sort of politics and these sort of cultural discussions, there's a lot of just nonsense, like there's sure. stuff that people do that just makes no fucking sense. So <laughs> there's an author named uh, Wang Shuo who wrote a book called Please Don't Call Me Human that is incredible, like hugely, hugely recommend that to anyone hmm. who can check that out, and um, but so that whole book is just like a satire of the cultural revolution. And Mm. it's basically about this guy who's just a loser who decides that because people congratulate him whenever he does something heroic for the government, that he's just going to like destroy his mind and body and life just to like be a hero. Uh, and it's it's incredible. It's such a dark, like fucked up, weird book. It's like kinda of reminds you of Brazil or something, you know? Mm. Yeah, it's awesome. And what's amazing is he has a bunch of books like that that are just super political and super fucked up. And the thing that's controversial about him is that he's rude and uses a lot of profanity. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Okay, so how do some people who make political commentary get just totally slapped down no matter how small it is? And then some people go nuts and it's like, well, it's fine, but it'd be nice if you just use less profanity.
1: I wonder if the censorship in Devotion might be somehow due to the new proliferation of video games in Chinese culture. I know Steam is, has its own Chinese version over there. And I think a lot of, um, like, online competitive games are really popular there, like PUBG and Fortnite, stuff like that. Oh, yeah. I heard they just released their own version of PUBG or something like that. But, you know, streaming might be a new thing over there, too. And I think it was a Chinese streamer that discovered the um, offensive image. I'm wondering if this is just the Chinese government's sort of, like, reactionary control grab. It has a little bit of overreach just because, you know, the, the the whole online competitive gaming thing is pretty new over there.
0: Well, absolutely. I think that's the other big piece of context that's really necessary when you're talking about this developer is that the Chinese game industry is exploding right now. Right. I mean, in, in China, mobile gaming is really big. Like it isn't pretty much most non-Western markets, Mm -hmm. Mobile gaming is way bigger than it is like in the US. They're getting a lot of good press. There's a lot of games that have come out that are getting really good reviews. I mean, Mm -hmm. essentially, in, in terms of full price, you know, games that aren't mobile, we're now seeing Chinese developers looked at as equals with everybody else. Right. And that and that's pretty new. I mean there was a lot of bias against China, you know, like oh, like Chinese stuff is just knockoffs and just like cheap garbage or whatever, right? right? Um which is its whole whole other conversation about why people think that, but um they're finally getting the recognition and then this Taiwanese developer steps in and makes a game that is even more acclaimed and has the, is on track to be more popular than all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's critical of the Chinese government. I can totally see that just being a huge problem for, you know, the powers that be
1: right. And, and before the game got pulled, uh, I, I was doing research on the game, and I saw a lot of local Taiwanese and Chi- Chinese press covering this game, and I, it was sort of a big deal. Um, I I believe like the voice actors and the little girl voice actress is pretty well known in Taiwan. She's like kind of a pseudo celebrity, and right. uh, they were like interviewing her for local news. There was there's a lot of, there was a lot of buzz around this game as like uh and a Taiwanese like cultural export it's so interesting how it just it released and it was just like such a it it was sort of like a little Taiwanese cultural phenomenon and then it went down in flames like less than a week later and it's just stuck in this strange purgatory
0: right and the other thing is that detention was really popular in China was it Mm -hmm. so I think that is another piece of this puzzle it really feels like when i'm sure you felt the same way when you're trying to research this stuff it's like you're putting together a puzzle you're like what happened why did this happen because i think the press coverage of it has been really bad and really short-sighted right
1: yeah i think the most interesting stuff that i found is actually a a reddit post that you shared with me yeah i believe it's from a you know taiwanese or chinese reddit user and they explain Um, all the cultural significance of devotion that a Westerner would just not pick up. And I think, you know, to to tell this story, you need a Chinese or Taiwanese voice to like fully grasp the situation.
0: Absolutely. And that was why I kind of did this research and was thinking about all this stuff because even while I was playing, I played devotion first. And while I was... Yeah. While I was playing it, I felt like there were just so many things that I didn't understand Mm. because and it's the same with Detention, too. With Detention, I actually did my research before I played the game um, because I just felt like these games are so deeply rooted in all the stuff we're talking about. The games are set in Taiwan. They're set in a specific time and place. They're representative of cultural shifts and phenomena that were happening at the time. And they're coming out now as a reflection of the political situation. Now, you know,
1: I I took the opposite approach. I went into both of them blind. And so I got, I think I got like two layers of appreciation for them because at face value, they are like, you know, good horror games, you know, right. Detention's a point and click horror. Um, devotion is a first person layers of fear style horror. Um, and they work really well as that, you know, just formally as functional game products. <laughs> um, right. But I think stepping back from that, um, you're left with a lot of questions uh, culturally. Well, at least me as a Westerner, you know, there were a lot of things that didn't make sense or that ah, I didn't understand. And then I started doing research and it kind of like, it opened a, a bit of a doorway of like understanding. It gives you context of, you know, the, the political climate. Cause these games are like cautionary tales. It's like reading 1984 or something, but right. they're
0: given to you under
1: this guise as horror games
0: yeah, absolutely. And I think that that is what really made them hit home for me was that that truth contrasted with, like I said, how the press is handling this whole situation. Yeah. Which I think is just so poor. And I mean, I have a bit of background in journalism, I'm definitely not a journalist, but it was just interesting to watch it happen and be like, man, you guys are always sort of reaching for like this big thing to talk about or this big thing to break. And here it is. And y'all are just acting like a bunch of morons, you know? Yeah.
1: Instead of writing, you know, the little blurb about, Hey, we still haven't got news about this. Like this could be a feature about, you know, how this new media is impacting Taiwanese culture in a big way.
0: Absolutely. And instead it's like, yeah we're just getting blurbs and all the other big issues that a lot of outlets are trying to sort of pick up on or talk about are just i don't know you know they just seem like really small potatoes in comparison to this but that's my frame of reference just coming from (laughs) the background i come from you know and just knowing that it's like yeah you can get pulled out of your house and killed over shit like this yeah you know And so it's like, well, if someone's talking about loot boxes being unfair to gamers or like, why aren't, (laughs) you know, it's like, I totally don't give a shit about that. But even some of the coverage of like union stuff is starting to really kind of rub me the wrong way because there's Mm -hmm. a lot of like, there's a lot of fucking myopic chatter about like, well, why isn't every developer unionizing? It's like, well, have you ever tried to unionize something like, yeah, people fucking died over that shit. Yeah. People also get dragged out of their homes and shot over that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. I think in Ohio,
1: people were mowed down with machine guns at coal plants. You know, people forget about that so quickly.
0: Yeah. And that wasn't that long ago. Yeah. It's also like, I just get so fed up with just internet commenters acting like people don't have to pay their fucking bills. Yeah. Well, I mean, go ahead. (laughs) I mean, that was literally it. It's just like... I work in the worst industry. Like there's just no money making there. You just have to hustle all the time. And so it's like, yeah, man, I've worked some pretty shitty places for pretty shitty people. I still fucking do. And it's like, it's cause I got my fucking bills to pay. (laughs) And the more money you make and the more comfortable you get, the more important it is to keep paying those fucking bills. And so it's like, I'm, I'm totally pro union and I'm fucking like hang, hang all the bosses, dude, like fuck them. But at the same time, it's like you have to <laughs> you have to give people a little bit of leeway. You have to try and understand the person who says, Well, I have to pay my bills. Yeah. You know? For sure.
1: There's there's a weird stigma about creative people being lazy. If you want to see somebody hustle, like go to your most creative friend. You know what
0: I mean? No, I know. And I was actually thinking about that the other day, that it's like I As a musician and an engineer, I fucking tortured myself for years and years and years. And I really, I partially did it because I like making those sorts of projects and I have a lot of creative energy, but I would be hugely lying if I said that it wasn't partially just stigma and just wanting to prove everyone wrong. So when people say, yeah, you can't, you can't make a living doing music or like musicians are lazy. I'm like, fuck you, dude. I work all day, every day. And I make a living doing this. Like, fuck you. Yeah. I would definitely and I ruined say, like, my half fucking the life Yeah,
1: yeah, definitely. Like half my ambition in like my musical career has been like fuck yous to people that I could that said I couldn't do it. You know. Yeah, and it's a, been at a great detriment to my personal life. I mean, right? Like being
0: a touring musician like ruined my twenties. <laughs> 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 Yeah, it's really frustrating, but I get that. I've been thinking about that a lot because I get that same feeling yeah. reading people talk about game developers now, whether it's positive or negative comments. Like I said, there's just yeah. so much myopic bullshit. There's so much like people just not trying to put themselves in that scenario. Yeah. And the other thing I was going to
1: say about that is that, I mean, these people commenting on you know video game articles, they're a bunch of shitty like gamer types that like have no like real grasp on what it is to like work that sort of job or anything
0: and you know i've been thinking about this a lot lately too because we like to stereotype gamers a lot it's Uh, fun it is it's just good fun and we (laughs) are technically (laughs) gamers as well for sure yeah it's you know uh but it's i've really started to think about this where it's like is this hobby just super sheltered
1: yeah and it's also i think you know there's like a poisonous self-culture and i think it has to do with like how horrible like adolescent boys are you know yeah like one adolescent boy is okay but then you put like five of them unattended together that's when like atrocities happen oh yeah And so I feel like a lot of gamer culture is like the perpetuation of that, you know, like the misogyny
0: and like just like fun, casual racism and all that. Well, I was just thinking about it because lately, you know, comments are getting, I guess, a little more like, you know, mindful of these sort of issues. And so you'll see someone post something really terrible, but sort of in an unintentional way, you know, and then someone else will jump in and just be like. Hey, man, that's really fucked up. And then the person, you know, if they're a reasonable person will be like, oh, I never thought of it that way. There'll be something so basic, like, oh, like women are people. And it's like, (laughs) you never thought of that. And it's like, man, this like this. I think this whole I don't know, the whole like fandom is just super sheltered.
1: Yeah, yeah and I think uh, you know it also depends on you know what we're looking at. You know, you look at the arguments about like, you know, like that Battlefield game where they actually like put women in the game and everybody was pissed off. You know, dudes like me and you aren't going to play that game. Right. That's a, that's a different set of gamers, you know. <laughs> we right. want to play the games that are cautionary tales about the Chinese government being totalitarian. <laughs> yep.
0: Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So, the first game by Red Candle was Detention.
1: Yeah. Uh, January 2017, Steam release. In Chinese, it means uh, returning to school, which I guess is a little more foreshadowing than Detention was. So, as Ali was saying earlier, it's set in the 1960s in Taiwan. Taiwan was under martial law. There was a period called the White Terror Period, um, which was almost 40 years long where, um, you know, thousands were executed. Uh, hundreds of thousands of political dissidents were imprisoned. Pretty insane. Like, they imprisoned most of, like, the intelligentsia um, social elite uh, for being, like, communist sympathizers and stuff. So
0: Right, and that's what I thought was interesting earlier, and that's why this game made me think of those Chinese works about the Cultural Revolution, was that China did the same thing, but they just had a different marketing on it, yeah, uh, and yeah, I mean, like the three-body problem. Everyone should go fucking read that book. It's so good. It's just a really good sci-fi novel, but it has all mm. these political undertones and subplots, and that's that's kind of what, what's so interesting about approaching this game politically. Because it's like, oh yeah. That's the same thing that happened, except in China It was you guys are reactionaries, and in Taiwan it was you guys are communists.
1: And interestingly enough, um, there is a known incident that happened at the middle school at a middle school during the White Terror period. Um, but I found it really hard to find details on that um, online. Huh. So this may be like loosely tied to a real event at a school. So, huh? Yeah.
0: Well, and I think the setting of the school is cool because they use it as sort of a microcosm of the country. Oh, totally. Yeah. Like, it's just this place that people have to go to. It's run by this authoritarian, you know, ex-military general. But everyone there is really just trying to survive and and live. And like you said, the microcosm uh,
1: aspect is really interesting.
0: I mean, that was the thing for me. Well, like when I was growing up, you know, Like the political situation in Lebanon is like insane. It always has been. And I remember, you know, thinking that people must have these strong opinions on everything if you live there. Right. Right. And We actually go over there and you talk to people and it's like, hey, man, like, what do you think about all these Syrian soldiers all over the place? People are like, we don't fucking care, dude. (laughs) Like (laughs) I got to get to work in 20 minutes. Yeah, exactly. And some people were even like, I'm glad that Siri is here because it means that, like, you know, someone else isn't here. <laughs> and so it's like, mm. really, that's the truth of it. With all this political shit. Yes, there are people who have strong opinions and there's people who are, you know, very, very ideological. But the average person doesn't fucking care. They just want to live their life.
1: Right. My homework yeah. is due tomorrow.
0: Right. And that's I mean, I think that's the crux of what a lot of the current American political situation is, is like these people are trying to make it so we can't live our lives. That's just how fucking dire it's gotten, you know? Yeah. Thanks, Facebook. Yeah. Thank you, Facebook Nazis and Facebook Nazis and the Republican senators who love them. It's <laughs> the title of my romance novel I'm writing. Oh,
1: I could see the cover now.
0: Fabio on the cover no it's it's Mitch McConnell like caressing like a, one of those Tiki Torch guys yes
1: but the Tiki Torch guy is Fabio
0: yeah and the dicks are
1: out I'm gonna Photoshop this <laughs>
0: that's, the, that's our new her new profile picture on Facebook let's get banned bro yeah we'll
1: call it a uh, devotion Two.
0: <laughs> devotion Two, devoted to you <laughs> Perfect. Uh so anyway, the game itself is a third-person point and click adventure mm-hmm. game. Is how you described it, which I like. Uh I really like the style of game. I've noticed that it's it's kind of taken off in the last few years. We've gotten games like Night in the Woods. Oh yeah, Night in the Woods. Well, the, well, Night in the Woods wasn't point and
1: click though. Which is something I wanted to bring up is that this game doesn't have controller support. And that's total bullshit because it could totally support a controller.
0: Dude, I... Okay, dude, this is actually really funny. I played it on Switch, so... Yeah, oh, it, my God. I played it with a controller. Wow. Oh, dude, this would suck as a point-and-click game.
1: <laughs> well, it doesn't suck because it's like... Uh, this is the thing I was going to bring up, you know, since it was point-and-click on PC. I played it sort of like, you know, uh, like a simplified, like LucasArts Adventure game. Sure. Where you just click at things. Um, but I don't think that was to its detriment because it's pretty simple and there's no dead ends or like backtracking or looping. It's more linear of an experience.
0: Yeah. What I was going to say about the style of game and specifically thinking of night in the woods, I really enjoy it because it plays just like an adventure. You know, it's there's side scrolling 2d games. Mm hmm. That more or less are point and click adventure games, but you get to actually directly control the character and interact with things. And it just gives you that extra level of like gaminess and immersion that right. I really, really enjoy. Right. So the two games that it made me think of the most were I've already said Night in the Woods, but the other one was a game called The Cat Lady, yeah. uh, which is a 2014 PC game. Mm-hmm. I believe it's from 2014. Um, and that game is really cool. It kind of has that similar janky Newgrounds style,
1: like Flash style animation.
0: Yeah, but it's like way it's it's a lot uglier, but it's kind of on purpose. Um, I really, really like that game, and it's very, very bizarre. But that game was point and click, and I kind of felt like there were a lot of moments where I was like, oh, I wish I could just control this character because mm. it just gives it that extra level of just immersion and just that kind of tactile feel. So I actually really recommend playing this on a console.
1: The spiritual sequel for cat lady just came out. I don't know if you were aware.
0: Anyway, I I like this style of game. I think of all the sort of updates to the adventure game formula. This is probably my favorite one.
1: Yeah. Well, I think you're missing one huge um, sort of reference or um, one huge influence, which is silent hill one. uh this game is deeply silent hill one um i i don't know if you picked up these cues or not uh, but uh early on in the game when you're exploring the school i feel like there's a huge nod to silent hill one because um there's a part where you can't progress because there's like a big metal gate wall and the the solution to getting around the school is like lifted straight from silent hill one uh, you have to like, oh, take yeah. the long way around and, like, take that staircase and that staircase. And uh, I feel like the architecture and staircase was, like, taken straight from Silent Hill 1.
0: I don't know if there are any direct references, uh, like, direct, direct references right. to Silent Hill in this game. But there is in Devotion. Uh, I don't know if you caught this, but there's a piano in the apartment. and Yes. Yeah, the... Yeah. The metronome is a Yamaoka brand metronome. (laughs) I was like, oh, you fuckers.
1: That's great. Well, and that puzzle was in Silent Hill 1 in the school. The piano puzzle. Yeah.
0: Yeah, yeah, totally. And the other thing, too, is that this game has basically kind of a layered other world, just like Silent Hill does. It's not a mechanic or a core part of the game, but Mm -hmm. the school is shown in various states of decay. You know, there's like the real world. Then there's like the kind of dark rusty other world and there's a totally black falling apart other world and it kind of just keeps stepping down sure it's super cool i think they did that style really well i mean it's it's a trope now because of silent hill but i thought they did it well
1: yeah i think the uh, the backgrounds um they have like a painterly style um yes even though the perspective is very flat you know you get the straight like 90 degree angle walls and everything the use of color and
0: painterly i think application makes it look really nice For sure. So this game has a really crazy, distinct art style. I don't know. You said initially you didn't really like it.
1: Uh, Yeah, so I, I don't like the way the characters look. I do like the backgrounds. I hate the animation. It's very like, like you said, like Newgrounds, like Flash
0: animation, like almost like paper dolls. And I loved it because the backgrounds are gorgeous, like you said, but the characters are supposed to look like paper dolls. They reference paper and paper airplanes and all this stuff multiple times in the dialogue and throughout the game. And and also like it's very stark because like the characters are white and flat and they look and they move stiffly but nothing else in the game does the backgrounds are all really fluid and gorgeous and all this kind of stuff so i liked it as a choice i understand kind of why you didn't maybe maybe
1: the art direction would make more sense if it was like animated like you know like frames of animation instead of like you know like the flash animation maybe that would have made it 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 didn't read as papery to me i guess sure yeah yeah
0: I, I can see that, but I loved it. it. It's a really either way. It's a really striking-looking game, which I thought was totally to its its benefit. Yeah, um, the the lighting is cool. The use of color is cool because there isn't a lot of it.
1: I don't know. I I might feel differently if I played it with a controller.
0: I think you would. Now that I know that, I feel like you may have had a slightly different experience <laughs> playing with a controller. Well, I think so. and so. I've, I've said this dude. I fucking love the switch and I love playing stuff in handheld because that's m- like mostly how I did it when I was a kid. So oh. it's just so comfortable and like normal to me to just play stuff at, on like a handheld device. Right. And this game was really good playing it handheld. It was really good with like the pro controller.
1: Yeah. I, I have a different experience with the switch. It's. It, it it does two things for me. It's an exclusives machine, so I can play right. Mario. And then uh I have one of those flip grips so I can play vertical screen games. Uh, yeah. so I have like vertical screen arcade shooters that I play with the flip yeah. grip. But other than that, it doesn't get a lot of play. If sure. if 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 there's a port, I'm gonna get it on Steam, because you know, I paid for a 1080 Ti, I'm gonna use it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I totally get that. I, I kind of try and be, yeah, besides exclusives, I just sort of try and think like, oh, what would I really like to play in that format? You know? So
1: also there's a Nintendo tax on all the software. I feel like all the games are like 10, 15 bucks more expensive on switch.
0: Uh, not always, but for a lot of stuff. Yeah. And there's never sales. So But like I'm I'm really deep into uh, Friends of Ringo Ishikawa right now. Mm. And that game literally feels like a super sized beefed up Game Boy Advance game. Mm. <laughs> and so I'm just loving literally playing it the exact way I would have in, you know, 2001, but with a bigger screen. Like, yeah, I'm just loving it just late nice. at night, just fucking rocking it on the switch. And <laughs> in episode Five, I was trying to remember the name of this very like treasure games inspired game. And I did. It's called Iconoclasts. Oh, yeah. I have that on Switch, actually. Oh, nice.
1: Yeah, I, I got the cart from Limited Run. That That's what'll get me to buy Switch games.
0: Oh, me too. Yeah. yeah, like I've been following a few indie games that it's been like they've been promising a cart release on the Switch. I'm yeah. like, do it do it give me dim carts give me dim full color manuals <laughs> there's supposedly been in the works for a long time a hyper light drifter switch cart
1: yeah um, dude yeah i've got the 4 lp box set of the hyper light drifter soundtrack wow. it's literally one of the like top five best video game soundtracks of all time
0: yeah no absolutely i really need to get that vinyl because i listen to it all the fucking time
1: it's fantastic. The synth sounds are so, like, haunting, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, I love it. So I, I like I like the Switch just for being able to choose, like, what kind of experience I'm going to have with a game, you know? If it's like, I just want to play it, I'll get it on PC. But if I want to have that experience, I'll get it on Switch. With the tension, it was 100% like, okay, I want to have this experience. Because it also kind of has that feeling for me of, like, a beefed-up Game Boy Advance game kind yeah. of. Cause like I used to really like playing adventure, the few adventure games that were on the Game Boy Advance. Like um, Gabriel Knight was on the Game Boy really? Advance. Yeah, dude, it's a good <laughs> port. So I would, I would recommend to anyone who wants to check out this game, definitely get a console. I think it's on like every console or at least it's on the switch. Um, I,
1: I think it's pretty inexpensive too.
0: Yeah. I mean, it was like $12. Yeah,
1: totally worth 12 bucks. Oh, so do we, we want to talk about the game mechanics a little bit? Yeah, for Um, sure. So in in terms of puzzles, it's mostly item based, you know, like solve a simple puzzle, you know, find a key, progress to the next stage. It's 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 pretty linear. Uh, I would say the game starts more open ended and becomes more linear as as the story progresses, which sort of gives you the illusion of it being a bigger game than it really is. You know, besides that, there's really no dead ends. It's forgivable. It's not like a old Sierra game or anything. But then I guess the other big game mechanic is the, uh, the enemies, uh, which sort of disappear towards the end of the game.
0: Yeah. So this is kind of a weird one because so, yeah, the game doesn't have combat, but it has these enemies that you need to avoid usually by holding your breath. And they're yeah they're not really a big part of the game early on you like you get a little pamphlet that's a tutorial right and you get a new sort of hint about how to get away from them every time there's a new one Mm -hmm. Uh, although there's only but yeah there's only two and they're not really a big part of the late game and so I guess like you could look at it as sort of a weird non-entity but I actually love the design of these things i thought was so cool
1: but in terms of like total just like gameplay design it's like yeah you get the pamphlet teaching you how to deal with them you deal with them three times and then you never see them again and then you meet the next one and you get the pamphlet and you deal with them a couple times and then it's over so i think as a as a mechanic it's sort of stilted Uh, But yeah, like the designs are cool and they look really cool. And I think, you know, if if you're like watching the game, I mean, it's cool looking, but I don't know if it like really does anything for the game.
0: Yeah. I mean, I really liked. So the the normal ones you have in the notes as scary ladies, Mm -hmm. Uh, I really liked what they did for the atmosphere of wherever they were, because like they make this sort of really creepy crying Noise. Yeah. The sort of crying, laughing, cut up, weird, fucked up noise. It's like horror ASMR. I love the what they added to the atmosphere of any room they were in. And like when you entered a room and heard that, it mm-hmm. wasn't like in an action game where you're like, Oh, I gotta get ready to fight. But it was just like, Ooh, they're here. You know?
1: Yeah. It's more of a fatal frame feeling. I think.
0: (laughs) Yeah, totally. I thought it was really effective in that way. Yeah. And you know, the game has really good atmosphere, like the art and the music and everything comes together really well. And, so I appreciated that the enemies were also just sort of a piece of the atmosphere towards the end. It goes away because they also don't really have anything to do with the story. And yeah,
1: yeah that brings up a good point. They don't really do anything for the story, do they? No, they're more, um, they seem to me be more like folklore yeah. which sort of throws you off the scent in terms of this game's theme. Like what are they doing in terms of folklore? I mean, One thing we didn't talk about Taiwanese culture is that they're very superstitious. Right. So maybe this is just, you know, the nod to the the heavy superstition in Taiwanese culture.
0: Right. Which becomes the theme in Devotion. Sure. Yeah. So I think in this game, yeah, it's maybe just another it's just another element, but it's cool. It's well done. I really like the second one. The tall boys. Oh, yeah. Uh,
1: The lantern guys. Yeah. Super creepy. Yeah.
0: And just super cool. And
1: they they like lean over and smell you yeah, while you're like holding your breath. It's
0: so creepy. And I don't know. I I was definitely playing it in Monica walk past. I was like, what the fuck is that? You know, (laughs) I think it's cool that it has that element in it because I think the game would be a little dry without them.
1: Yeah. They, you know, they do raise the tension in the first half. I guess I, I feel like the game takes, um, a bigger switch to more puzzle based solutions. For, like, the second, third, or second half, um, you get to a part of the game where you're jumping between time periods. Right. Uh, which is something they use again in uh, the next game, Devotion. I feel like the the game in, in one way got more interesting because the puzzles became a little more complicated, but I feel like the tension was lowered also because the sense of danger wasn't there.
0: One thing this game does is something that a lot of horror games do, which is that they realize about halfway through the game that they want to pivot. Um, Because if your game is an action based, you can't just do what action games do and just make everything harder and more stressful. Right. So instead you have to pivot. I mean, this is exactly the reason why resident evil established the secret lab in the basement trope. Because they were like, well, we want to show players something different in the second half, so we have to pivot. They got all the guns now. What do we do? Right. In the modern era, I think the secret lab in the basement is sort of the emotional plot line. Mm. And this game definitely 100% pivots into the emotional plot line. Sure. Uh,
1: It starts showing its cards.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think what this game does is that in the last third or last half, it stops being about what happened to the school, what's going on in the school, what are these ghosts, and mm-hmm. literally just becomes what's going on with Ray, who's the main character. right? And it literally takes you into her house in different time periods and shows you the sort of formative experiences that made this character you've been playing. Yeah. I think that's one thing the game does really well is suggest... Uh, things about characters because mm-hmm. like you don't get a ton of dialogue you don't get a ton of information but you get all these little hints and clues about the kind of person she is and the way she acts and etc cetera, et cetera. so when you finally get to see her internal life it's really really fascinating
1: right and so the the character's personal story that's what the silent hill style you know game is wrapped around But then there's a another bigger, like societal wrapping of totalitarianism in the country and how that ties into that, her personal story.
0: Right. So I think that this is kind of the place where we have to talk about spoilery shit. Hey guys, Ali here. Just letting you know that we do get super spoilery with Detention. If you want to skip that, you can jump ahead to the one hour mark. However, we decided not to spoil Devotion, so after that, the podcast is spoiler-free. Have fun! So I'm going to say that if you're listening and you haven't checked out these games... Um, Well, you know, you have to pirate devotion, but you can go check out the tension and I would highly encourage you to because it's an awesome game.
1: And they probably need to make their bail.
0: So yeah, (laughs) please help. Essentially, the other big split that happens in the story when we start to find out more about Ray's personal life is that we find out more about what was actually going on in the school We've gotten little hints and clues. We know that it's run by this totalitarian ex-military general guy. People are scared of him. But we find out a few things. You know, first is that there's basically like a banned book club where they import and read banned books that are against government regulations. Right. And
1: one of the teachers is the head of it.
0: Right. And the other thing we find out is that Ray has a really shitty home life. And Mm -hmm. this drives her to start an inappropriate relationship with this school counselor. Right. Right.
1: A male school counselor.
0: Right. And so things start moving together in this way. You find out about these two plot lines. And I really love how the game tells a story because it's Mm -hmm. it's intentionally obtuse.
1: Yeah. And it's sometimes pretty abstract.
0: Yeah. So, and it shows you things that are incorrect. Right. And and then we'll later show you the actual scene. So you'll see Mm -hmm. a scene with one character and then later a different character has jumped in and replaced them. And Mm -hmm. throughout the course of this, the game also starts to really like reveal its themes. Um, there's a lot of great lines and great quotes, uh, there's one, for example, that really made me start thinking about how this game, even before it was over, about how it's a message about censorship and anti-authoritarianism, mm-hmm. which is when the counselor says there are things our censored textbooks don't tell us. Right. You know, yeah. it kind of just lays it out there that it's like, oh, yeah, like this is sort of what the theme is. But there's also a lot of talk about um, like self-determination as well so Ray's kind of struggling both against this oppressive ideological thing but she's also trying to figure out what she's going to do with her life and if she's going to do what her parents want and that's where the paper theme kind of comes in like you're playing as this character who just feels like she is like weightless and paper thin because everybody is telling her what to do and everybody's telling her something different
1: one of the most striking uh, visual examples um, that kind of lingered with me was that um, you know she's She's like super vulnerable. You know, she starts like confiding in the inappropriate relationship with the counselor and they go meet at a movie theater and there's you know, the the character is like clearly like super in love. And in an abstract way you open a door and walk through it and it's like a it looks like this like cutesy anime like oh yeah, fantasy world and everything's like super happy and like happy animals and stuff. And it's like the entrance to the movie theater. But as you're walking out, you see it as it's really is. And it's just like a rotting
0: Silent Hill theater. Right. Well, and even after that specific point in the game, the school gets really, really messed up looking. Yeah. When you go back in, it's like literally disintegrating mm-hmm. and falling apart. Everything is really abstract. You're, there's multiple versions of your character that you have to jump between. Mm-hmm. It's like you and shadow yous. And yeah, it's really, really cool illustration of that whole concept basically after that event Ray is now alone because the relationship she was having with the counselor is ended by that counselor. Uh, and so she basically decides to get back on him or back at him by narking on the band book club.
1: Right? Because she misreads a note as thinking that the counselor is now in a relationship with the teacher that runs the band book club. So she's going to narc on them and ruin that relationship for sour grapes, I guess.
0: Right. But what actually ends up happening is the students go to jail for 15 years and they kill the counselor. (laughs) Basically, she ends up ruining a whole bunch of people's lives Mm -hmm. just over her own petty jealousy. And you realize that the frame story of the whole game is that she's a ghost who has all this unfulfilled business. And it's all being dredged up because one of the characters from very early in the game that we didn't talk about at all, which I think is fine. Uh, <laughs> you see him die in the game, but it's not real. And he actually was just like in prison and he comes back to the school as like a middle aged man. And he's just like looking around smoking a cig. Yeah, And
1: we, we didn't give everything away. So even if you listen to the spoilers, there's still something. There's still
0: a lot of meat on them bones. There's a lot of nuance. Uh, And there's a lot of detail Mm -hmm. that we didn't give away. The one thing about this game that I kind of maybe didn't love, but also do kind of love is that there's a good ending and a bad ending. Mm. Uh, We both got the bad ending. Right.
1: I I haven't Uh, looked up the good one yet, but I assume it's still like kind of bad.
0: So here's what's kind of okay. So, yeah, that's exactly my point is, well, I hate it because the way that you get the good ending is kind of obtuse. Like I got what the game was trying to get me to do, but I did it wrong, I guess. And it's like super easy to do it wrong. When you actually see the good ending, all the exact same shit happens, but it's just framed as like. Well, now she's worked through her stuff and her ghost is released from the endless karmic cycle of like feeling bad. <laughs> uh, and that's that's the only that's the only difference. But all the same shit happens. So it's kind of misleading to say it's a good ending and a bad ending. But the bad ending yeah. does end on a real bummery note.
1: So really the cherry on top is that she gets like in a big award. She gets a big award for narking on everybody and getting people executed. Right. I really feel like that's uh, like the the real cherry on top of narking on everybody you know
0: is getting the nark of the year award <laughs> yeah yeah it's a really cool story I loved how it jumped into all these tropes like we were talking about you know there's mm. the silent hill stuff there's these kind of almost zombieish enemies there's the haunted school blah 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 and then just teen slowly, suicide stuff yeah little just nightmare on Elm street right It slowly unraveled all of it, you know, and by the end of the game, it's just a story about like someone just getting mixed up in their own feelings and accidentally sending a bunch of people to their death in a totalitarian regime.
1: We were, we were talking in one of the previous episodes about society circling the drain, you know? I think we need more of this.
0: <laughs> well, it's absolutely a cautionary tale, and they make reference to, you know, how terrible everything has been in the last 10 years or so, you know? Yeah. And th- this game's set in the 60s, 70s, like late 60s, early 70s, I think. Mm-hmm. And they keep making reference to, like, yeah, it's it's been really rough, man. And, yeah, it's absolutely a cautionary tale. Great stuff. Video games man. Hey y'all, thanks so much for listening to the Zero Brightness Podcast. If you want to support us the most direct ways are at our Patreon, which is at patreon.com slash zero brightness. You can also give us a rating on the service of your choice. I know Apple's super into that. And when you leave a rating, you can also leave us a suggestion for a future episode topic you can also follow us on facebook as well as instagram we're at zero brightness pod you can also shoot us an email with thoughts comments whatever at zero brightness podcast at gmail.com it's been really cool interacting with people and sharing thoughts on facebook and reddit so hoping to hear from you guys more directly in the future okay enjoy the rest of the episode what's cool about playing this game and Devotion at the same time is you can see how many of these ideas they developed into Devotion
1: yes absolutely
0: I think Devotion is such a cool second game from a company or just such a cool step up from their first game Mm -hmm. you know it has so many of the same ideas and philosophical ideas and, and game design ideas but it's just done in a much bigger and better way
1: yeah, so it 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 I would say it's like 80% the same themes, but the game is so ridiculously different um that
0: it really feels like a complete, you know, like evolution of the theme. It's it's wild just from a perceptual sense. You wouldn't think it was made by the same company, but yeah, once you pick it apart, you're like, "Oh yeah, this is the same guys." So, Devotion, as we kind of talked about in the intro, was released in February of this year. Uh, Mm -hmm. It's a first person exploration based adventure game. It's Mm -hmm. very, very PT inspired. Won't belabor that. We've talked about that enough on this show. (laughs) Yeah. But um,
1: I guess like. I probably will reference Layers of Fear a lot in this review because I feel like the entire time I was playing this game, I was thinking about layers of fear because it really succeeds in doing everything
0: that layers of fear failed at i think this game has a lot of ideas that you may have seen in other like first person horror games and a lot of concepts that the player probably is familiar with if they're familiar with this genre but the way it's executed and the high level at which it's operating is really really stunning
1: right It also has a sort of minimalist approach in terms of atmosphere, and as a gameplay design choice or a scenario design idea, them limiting themselves to such a small scope probably helped
0: with the narrative. I I totally agree, and I think the thing that this game excels at is giving you context. So Mm -hmm. even though, like we said earlier, as a American playing this game, there was a lot of stuff that I felt like I don't have the context or I don't totally, totally get this, but within the story and the game itself, you get all the context that you need on a basic level, even if you're not familiar with it. And I mean, it's, it's apparent from like the opening moments of the game. I love how this game opens. Mm -hmm. Um, Basically the beginning of this game is you're, Character opens their eyes. You're in a first person perspective. Mm-hmm. They're sitting at a table in front of a TV, and you hear a woman talking to you from the kitchen while she's cooking, and she's talking to you about, you know, your daughter. So right away, uh-huh. you get, okay, this is a family. I'm the dad. The, you know, my wife and the mother of this kid is in the kitchen right now. The kid is not in this scene. And she's just talking, like, basically chatting with you making small talk and it the graphics are gorgeous and you're really like in this little apartment living Mm -hmm. this scene and you don't know where it's going to go next and there's a knock at the door and she says oh can you check that out you go to the door open the door you're outside your apartment in a hallway you keep walking and then you're at another door open Uh it up and you're back in your apartment but it's totally different yes and like right there in 2 minutes the game has given you all the context you need for the story it's shown uh-huh. you what the gameplay loop is going to be like and it's like explicitly told you that you're going through different time periods and stuff through signs on the wall and stuff
1: it wears its heart on its sleeve
0: that just like really blew me away like i haven't seen something like that in a long time just how yeah. well done and
1: simple that was yeah and it throws you right into it like there's no no bullshit no 20 minute cutscene at the beginning Right. Time to go.
0: Well, and I was thinking about it because there's been a lot of talk lately about how a lot of new games don't know how to start. Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) Like every big release this year, the reviews are all like, man, the first two hours of this are miserable. You know, some of them, it's like the first 20 hours are not good. And it's like 20 hours, 20 fucking hours.
1: (laughs) Are you Uh, kidding me? I sympathize because I just finished, uh, Yakuza Koami too. And for every story, um, checkbox in that game, there's like a 15 minute cutscene. So (laughs) at least it feels like it.
0: Right. But like, you know, the thing about Yakuza, uh, I, so I've only, I love those games, but I've really been meaning to catch up on them. I've only played the first two Mm -hmm. on the PS2 and, uh, they, they have great intros, man.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: The intro of the first Yakuza is like fucking legendary. Like you start up and it's like a stormy night and you have to go beat up a bunch of dudes. The game is literally like, here's the button. You press to slam. A guy's head into the wall. You're like, <laughs> yeah. this fucking rips. And then the game is like, okay, actually you go to jail. It's a year later. Now do all that shit again. Yep. And you're like, yes. Like you're just so fucking... <laughs> You're you're just fucking down, you know, and it's like, yeah, yeah, that's those are long games. Those are involved games, but it's it's important to establish what you're going to do and what the world is Mm -hmm. right away. You know, like, I don't know. It's a bummer to hear that games are kind of losing. A lot of games are losing the art of like a really good punchy intro, but devotion definitely (laughs) has. Probably the best intro I've seen in a long time. When you start playing the game, you may feel like, oh, like if this is all there is, you know, what then is going to keep me hooked or what are going to be the depths? And I think the game is really good about doling out information to keep you hooked. Yeah, totally. Yeah, like Essentially, the gameplay loop is you go into a new version of your apartment. Mm-hmm. You are looking around for clues and solving you know, pretty simple item based puzzles. And every time you find a new item, not even necessarily solve a puzzle, but every time you find a new item, you get another clue, another piece of the puzzle, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, just something to let you try and or to help you figure out what's going on with this family. Right. And
1: most of the items are symbolic items that reveal
0: memories. So they
1: might not even be, you know, uh, some stuff that wouldn't make sense are like symbolic
0: and you would set up symbolic things. Right. Exactly. And it's paced so well and it has a really good progression feel as well. Cause like I remember early on some of the, you know, sometimes you find something and you get a little clue and then it pays off later in a moment and you're like, Oh, that's all pretty cool. But then later on, like you'll find a clue and you'll see something and then you'll come back and the the landscape will be totally different or you will have like completely altered the apartment itself. Right.
1: At, for, at first it doesn't make sense how the apartment keeps changing, but then you realize that you're sort of living in a broken narrative and it's not really the apartment that's changing. It's the, the time period is changing. So you'll, right. jump, in back, you'll jump back and forth between uh, years of this family's life and you, you, un, you unravel the story in a broken narrative back and forth sort of way.
0: Right. And as you go on, you start to, like I said, you piece together what happened to this family and how things fell apart Mm -hmm. for them. Right. Uh, And it's man, it's really, really cool. It's obviously super dark and super depressing
1: I feel like the big difference in terms of theme between the two games, you know, the government state totalitarianism is really the main point. I feel like for devotion, it it becomes a lot more personal and what society expects of a family and a mother and a man.
0: Right. And I think that's another really cool thing they do with the progression from detention to devotion is Mm -hmm. to try and, address not only more modern issues, but also like literally what happened after. So yeah, we found this really, really good Reddit post where a user uh, named octave bits, which is a really good username, uh, basically gave a bunch of cultural background on Taiwan and talked about some of the themes in the game in relation to Taiwanese culture To basically sum it up, they were saying that around the time the game is set, uh, the uh, martial law was ending. The country was experiencing this sort of economic boom. Um, people were starting to kind of live a more modern lifestyle and have more creature comfort, stuff like that.
1: Yeah, they they said something that was interesting. They said there was almost like an American dream feel. Like if you moved to Taiwan, you could you know have the American dream essentially.
0: So at the same time, though, they were still grappling with all of these long-held traditional cultural beliefs, which are. Right. I mean, surprisingly, they're not really unique to Taiwan. I mean, this game could really hit home for anybody who's from any kind of traditional culture. Absolutely. And it did for me, totally.
1: Um, there's a lot of superstition built into the game. Um, yeah. And, you know, a little personal story. Uh, about a decade ago, I was engaged to a girl whose dad was a curandero, which is a like Mexican spiritual healer. And so, you know, I've been to his store, you know, his botanica, and we had, like, an altar set up in the back. and So a lot of the really superstitious stuff um, that happens in this game uh, was really reminiscent of, like, my experience with, like, a spiritual healer from Mexico. Oh, yeah. And that he was, like, a total fucking charlatan, too. He, like, he made a lot of money on, like unsuspecting old ladies etc so there there are a lot of you know parallels here to the game
0: absolutely and i think for me that the big thing that hit home was the fact that in this culture like a lot of traditional cultures like mental health was not spoken about right and mental on a ghost
1: or something yeah
0: right mental illness was not seen as real uh these issues just were not discussed. Like it, mm. it wasn't just that there wasn't awareness. It did not exist um, because people refused to acknowledge its existence. And that's how we got crazy superstitions, faith healers, a lot of religious extremists. I mean, burn the witch. Yeah. It's literally all just coming from people not wanting to deal with mental illness, with societal stigma and all this kind of stuff. And right. I mean, I mean, my family, dude, Um, everyone just had so much, clearly had so much just like undiagnosed mental illness that mm. it really like. Yeah. My family just like totally fell apart, like when I was a kid and then just kept falling apart further and further because like nobody over the age of like 30 in my family would seek any sort of help or treatment for anything.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's not just like cultural, but also generational I mean, oh, yeah. Yeah, we can edit this out, but, like, my family's all fucked up. Like, everybody's family has these stories. You know, everybody's fucked up. You know, like, you know, child molesters and families and fucking pe- mur- people in jail for murder are in families. You know, everybody's got, like, dark family stories. Right. And so, you know, that's probably, you know, you know, one of the reasons why this game resonated with us, you know?
0: Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And that's kind of what I was saying about Detention, I feel the same way about devotion, where it's like these are very, very universal themes. Everyone has their own way that they're going to connect to it, and you know, based on culture and all this kind of stuff. But ultimately, the themes are very, very universal. And yeah, I thought, man, I thought it was brilliant. Like this game just hit all those notes so well, it's so <laughs> well written.
1: Yeah, totally.
0: It feels like such an evolution of detention where they were experimenting with telling a story with an unreliable narrator and giving you the clues in a non chronological order and all mm-hmm. those sorts of things. And this game, they just kicked it into overdrive. It
1: also like respects the player in terms of, you know, like intelligence. Like you said, it doesn't give all the answers to you. And it sort of, it, it expects you to keep up with it. And it doesn't dish it out like you're like, an, you know, like a 14 year old. I don't know if this game is going to do all well streamers, but.
0: Well, and that's what's crazy is that it was in the, you know, week or two that you could buy it. It was a big streaming thing. It was selling a lot. You mm-hmm. know, people were into it. And that's why I think that it's such a tragedy that. The whole political situation exploded around it because it really had the potential to actually get some of its message out to people who need to hear it. It's just much more common that you're either in an echo chamber or people just totally miss the point entirely. Do we do
1: we want to dig a little more into the story here or do we want to leave it sort of... Sp- this this half a little more spoiler free
0: i don't know because that was actually a pretty good like summary of why it's cool
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean i'm okay with leaving it sort of spoiler free um especially since the game's not like officially out right now so most people will play it for the first time you know we've talked about the mechanics we talked about the twists A, a lot of stuff just like in um detention is very abstract um you'll find an item that's You know seemingly you know not very useful like something like uh, this isn't spoilery but it's item you find like a like an origami flower and you'll find a place to use the origami flower and then what you unlock is not really memory like but it's more of like an abstract representation of like the relationship between the father and daughter. And, you know, there might be a memory involved, but it might be from the perspective of the daughter that you might not have seen before or um, they never show like the daughter or wife. They use sort of like, you know, uh, visual uh, proxies or like effigies for them. So you, you you might see an abstract scene of like, you know, like a doll going through a, like a mechanical diorama that explains, you know, that the daughter's state at that point in their lives.
0: Right. And I think that in this game, they took that same concept of abstract puzzle solving and abstract to- storytelling being rolled into one and they just did it so much better. Mm-hmm. Like, I really loved the puzzle sections of this game. And right. This isn't a spoiler either, but there's one kind of long puzzle section in the middle of the game Mm -hmm. where it opens up and becomes kind of more freeform.
1: Yes. Great part of the game, by the way. It's probably the best part of the game.
0: Yeah, I thought it was so fucking cool. And once again, like we said earlier, they're still feeding you these little clues and ideas about the story. So you're thinking about the story, but you're also puzzle solving.
1: Yes. And you're jumping back and forth through time but this is one of those points where you're actually like choosing what time period it's still playing with the broken narrative timeline but you're you're jumping back and forth like at your will
0: and especially after playing detention thinking about that part it's just such a streamlining of what they did in that game and it's just such an evolution of what they did in that game and i really haven't personally played anything like that that's done in such a smooth and Uh, well-presented way.
1: Yeah, I have. And this is the comparison that I said I was going to keep making. We played Layers of Fear, and it failed at this.
0: Yeah, it's so bad that it's just I wouldn't even compare them, yeah. I I can't
1: help but compare them, though, because there is a huge parallel between Layers of Fear and this game that I cannot ignore. I feel like almost like this game is like a retort to Layers of Fear as to like, (laughs) look, you guys had something and you blew it. This is what you really meant to do, <laughs> you know? yeah, for sure. It's got, it's got, it's got real emotional weight. Where layers of fear, fear f- fell flat on its face. I always think about that quote you made in the layers of fear review.
0: The thing that bothers me the most is that my name isn't on the most beautiful piece of art. Will you marry me?
1: You know, Layers of Fear did the drawer pulling mechanic where you're searching stuff where there's nothing. Detention yeah. streamlines all that. Um the yeah. notes make more sense. You find items instead of just notes everywhere. But the items tell the story. Um
0: I wrote that down in my personal notes. I said you find notes and items, but you don't find any journal entries which after playing right. fucking uh glass staircase was so refreshing.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh the spooks, you know, there there's one part that's sort of cheesy with the spooks and there's one part in this game where you die. But right. most of the spooks are genuine. Um Yeah. S- some some of them make it, turn it around on you like there's a peephole you look through and you feel like a creep for a second, you know? Um Right.
0: Yeah, the 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 scares in this game are really really good. And yeah. the fact that they're not tied to death um, makes them also effective cuz you're just like, "Oh, like that just scared me, you know. I yeah. wasn't punished for it, you know."
1: Yeah, horror games are fun when there's like a sense of unease and danger. Um the jump scares aren't super fun, you know, at least for me.
0: I agree. I think if it's well done, it's one thing, but I mostly don't I just don't like the the sort of punishment element where it's like oh like we're gonna punish you for finding this thing you know because a scare in a horror game is essentially something that you find it's almost like an item or a collectible and then to be like punished for it it's all it's just always struck me as really weird weird thing that horror games do sometimes
1: totally it's just
0: a great fucking game
1: i don't want to like tell people to pirate things but you should pirate this pirate the shit out of it and send it to your friends
0: yeah like if you don't know what fucking (laughs) <laughs> samizdat is this thing right now is samizdat which in soviet russia was basically the revolutionary act of copy illegally copying and distributing banned materials i love that uh, that's yeah. my new mantra <laughs> yeah like <laughs> what i mean obviously like pirating games sucks in one regard because you want to support developers and you want to keep the ecosystem going etc cetera, et yeah. et cetera. but it's like right now this game is banned you're not able to buy it for political reasons it's sami's dot everybody should fucking pirate this game
1: yeah if the chinese government doesn't want you to play a video game you should probably play it
0: everyone should be pirating this game and playing this game and talking about this game and the games media should be talking about the political ramifications of this game being banned and the things that this game and detention have to say totally it's also just from an artistic perspective, it's a huge bummer because these games are such a good double feature. Like, yeah, it's really once again, it's been a really long time since I've seen a developer put out two games that work together so well where like they strengthen their craft and they made something that called back to their earlier work. And like these people are great artists. Red Candle Games are like great totally. fucking artists. You know? Whoever
1: is in charge has a great vision.
0: The more that I researched this and thought about this topic and the more I played this game. I just got so frustrated with the discourse around it and just how how just paper thin it is right now. And sure, I really hope that if people listen to this, the two things they do is fucking pirate devotion and play it and openly talk about on the biggest platform they can how this is such hot bullshit.
1: Several years ago, people started having the conversation of like, you know, like what's next for video games can can video games actually have, like, real purpose, you know? Are video games art. Can video games make you cry? Remember that whole David Jaffe thing? If you want video games to, like, take the next step and actually, like, being thought of as, like, on the same tier as literary or something, you should support things like this, you know? Especially if they're being censored.
0: Oh, 100%. I mean, this is fucking art, man. Like, yeah. <laughs> this is real, real shit. This is, this is, like, the actual culture war and not the, like... <laughs> people telling you not to make the c word makes you mad because you hate your mom culture war this is like (laughs) this is people actually trying to silence political dissidents to erase ideas that exist this is some fucking real shit yeah Yeah, i can't
1: i can't can't think of anything less un-american than not powered in devotion